Welcome to Budget Watchdog, All Federal, the podcast dedicated to making sense of the budget, spending, and tax issues facing the nation. Cut through the partisan rhetoric and talking points for the facts about what's being talked about, bandied about, and pushed in Washington. Brought to you by Taxpayers for Common Sense. And now, the host of Budget Watchdog AF, TCS President Steve Ellis. Welcome to all American taxpayers seeking common sense. You've made it to the right place. For over 25 years, TCS, that's Taxpayers for Common Sense, has served as an independent, nonpartisan budget watchdog group based in Washington, D.C. We believe in fiscal policy for America that is based on facts. We believe in transparency and accountability because no matter where you are in the political spectrum, no one wants to see their tax dollars wasted. It's August 5th, and who doesn't love a summer surprise? This one? Like a phoenix rising from the ashes is the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, and it comes courtesy of Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and Senator Joe Manchin. And just today, dear podcast listeners, Arizona Democrat Senator Kirsten Sinema affixed the bow, making the package ready for delivery. So what's in the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, and will it actually live up to its name? Joining me to unwrap this revenue-raising reconciliation bill is none other than TCS Senior Policy Analyst, Josh Rasool. Welcome back to the podcast, Josh. Thanks. I'm happy to reconvene to reconcile some things. Okay. Well, speaking of reconcile, Josh, this bill has this name, the Inflation Reduction Act, but it's really the fiscal year 2022 budget reconciliation. Remind our listeners, what is reconciliation and why is it being used here? Reconciliation is an accelerated process in the House and Senate where they can pass legislation with their razor thin majority. So in the Senate, you don't need to get your 60 plus votes. You simply need 50 plus the tie break, which is the vice president. So the Democrats can pass a very large bill that can make consequential changes with only the 50 senators. And that's important because it prevents a filibuster and it allows some of these very major changes to occur. Now, in mid-July, Mr. Manchin and the Senate Majority Leader sort of threw up their hands and said this was done. And publicly, we all thought this process was probably dead for the year. Next thing you know, we all come to work on a Tuesday and pop, we have a deal. Then getting Senator Cinema on board and really has been a phoenix rising from the ashes. And so let's get into what's going on right now. As we understand it, at this moment in time, the, the impact of the Inflation Reduction Act will actually reduce deficits according to the congressional scorekeepers. And these are the nonpartisan scorekeepers, the Congressional Budget Office and the Joint Committee on Taxation. But we know, Josh, the devil's in the details because a lot of that spending will be in the near term and the savings will be amassed over a decade. But really, after a decade of emergency spending packages, budget deals, and tax cuts that didn't even try to reduce the deficit, a budget score of reducing the 10-year deficit by more than $100 billion is nothing to sneer at, right, Josh? No, it's not. And I think it is a big deal. Um, it is a, it's not the biggest, costliest package that we've seen even in this Congress. But at this point in time, it's a big deal for a number of reasons that you mentioned, and also the fact that this is the last really big thing to happen before the midterm elections in less than three months. And so again, a lot of Democrats, the president himself ran saying, we're gonna fix some problems. We're gonna, we're gonna focus on issues that we think the previous administration did not focus on, climate change, some of the so-called human infrastructure uh, and some other issues. And this is how the Democrats are going to deliver. Whether you like it or not, 
this is what they are going to run on, say, if they pass this, if, if we get to the, the finish line, which is not here yet, uh, then this is going to be what they run on in November. And it's important. It is a big deal. Uh, it's a politically, it's a big deal. But also, as you said, we've, we've seen package after package, not in this Congress and the previous administration, and even back to the Obama administration, dealing with the massive recession and the, the economic collapse in 2008 2009. And frankly, they almost never even pretend to cut the deficit. It was always spend, spend, spend. And under a previous reconciliation process done under President Trump, it was cut taxes, cut taxes, cut taxes. And they, no, but they didn't even do creative accounting or pretend to cut the deficit. And on this thing, we actually have, at least it's on paper, it's real reduction because it's, it's real tax changes and it's real uh, spending uh, changes. And so a lot of it is still subject to reality, to the future, uh, but it is compared to the other packages we've seen. This is an actual deficit reduction. Now, our publicly owned debt is more than $23 trillion. That's the size of our economy. And if you count the amount of money that the government owes itself, it's closer to $30 trillion. So $100 billion doesn't solve everything, but we have to start somewhere. And I think this kind of approach is what we need to do more of. So let's dig into some of these revenue raisers, Josh, you know, some of the ways that they're getting this uh, deficit reduction. Um, there was a, uh, a 15% uh, minimum tax that was set on uh, corporate income. And so, Josh, can you talk a little bit about that and what some of the adjustments have been done? Yeah. So this goes back to that issue of corporate taxes versus individual taxes uh, in, the, in the income code. And so one of the things the Democrats ran on again was you may remember headlines of large corporations, very profitable corporations paying zero dollars in taxes. And so Senator Warren of Massachusetts is one of the leads of of trying to find a way of of getting corporations to pay their fair share. So one of the, the I think it's actually the largest revenue raiser uh, in the package. Uh, it it would set a 15% minimum on corporations that make over a billion dollars in revenue. And so the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, estimated this would would raise $313 billion in revenue over the next decade. That's a that's a lot of money, right? That's a big deal. Well, it, it didn't have complete uh, unanimity in the party. While everybody was focused on Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia, the silent senator from the Southwest, Kristen Sinema, uh, who's basically never said much publicly about this whole process, and they've had to make some adjustments. Right. Namely, they uh, changed some of the accelerated depreciation, uh, allowed people, uh, companies to write off goods faster. Um, so that was one of the tweaks that came out of uh, the Senator Cinemas to get, get her green light on it. And speaking of other tweaks, and this isn't actually not a tweak, but, um, you know, jokingly call it, uh, you know, that the uh, the investment, uh, the, the hedge fund managers and investment managers that they can carry on with their carried interest. Uh, that was one of the uh, the offsets, right, Josh, that got axed by Senator Cinema. What is carried interest? Yeah. So carried interest is this tactic that primarily hedge fund managers use to shield their actual income on an annual basis. So because they're managing all this this money and these assets in these big, big hedge funds, instead of claiming income and claiming a wage or a salary for their actions of doing that management, they say they're, they're getting paid in the capital gains from that capital, from the, from the increase in value of the stuff that they're managing. So they're, what is... Anybody looking at it knows you're you're getting paid for what you're doing, so it should be an, a, it should be part of your salary or a wage equivalent. 
they're being taxed instead at the lower rate, which is the capital gains, which is what you would pay if you own stocks, uh, stocks and other sort of investments. And so this is another thing that many Democrats primarily have been trying to, uh, to rein in for years. And so, again, it was in the base bill, uh, or at least in the base uh, agreement that came out, but Senator Sinema uh, appeared to really not like this at all. So it, it has now been replaced with a, a tax of 1% on, on these massive stock buybacks, which is another uh, other way of people can make a significant amount of, of income that's not treated like a, a wage or salary income like most people make. Right. And, and I guess she's never been shy about not liking this provision. I mean, even though she's pretty reticent to talk about things, this is one that she's kind of um, crapped on before, uh, yeah. to put it finally. No, exactly. And that's where, in, and that's what's interesting to me about a lot of this process is that it has been done behind closed doors. I think it, and it was a surprise to most of us that Senator Manchin and Majority Leader Schumer came out and had this, this agreement. But this has been a public process for almost two years also. Like they've, this has been hashed out. I mean, the House has a whole different bill that they pass through all their committees and then they pass on the House floor uh, and that has some of this, these same provisions in it. So this is not, it's not like nobody ever thought this would happen. This is, this is not unexpected. It just came at a time when people, I think, had been so tired that we didn't think it would ever happen. <laughs> like it, it, it's, been, it's been a long process. Yeah, it has. It has. And, you know, and I think there was a lot of pressure on Senator Manchin because he was so public. And so he once he he cut his deal, put a lot of pressure on Senator Cinema to not be the only person who was collapsing this. And so to some extent, you can almost see that maybe they put in the 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 carried interest provision, even though Democrats have wanted to close that for a long time, just as something to to give to cinema. Um, I mean, she got Senator Cinema got some other stuff as well in the bill. Um, but so that might be you know, it's almost like uh, they knew it was going to be a negotiating tactic, and so they, they they brought that in there. But that's thirteen billion dollars worth of revenue um, that uh, got axed from the bill, even though it appears that that stock buyback, uh, that one percent tax, will actually generate more revenue than than the um, than than the carried interest. Uh, but it's still ridiculous that these people who are going to make money whether they lose money for their hedge fund or they make money for their hedge fund. So pretty clearly, it's a salary. It's, it's, it's income. It's not capital gains. You're listening to Budget Watchdog All Federal, the podcast dedicated to making sense of the budget, spending, and tax issues facing the nation. I'm your host, TCS President Steve Ellis, and we continue now with Josh Sewell, Senior Policy Analyst. So one other big piece of this puzzle has been about prescription drugs, Josh, and, and Medicare. What are they doing there both to uh, limit costs and to put out some spending? So the big thing in here is the federal government through Medicare, Medicaid, and some other programs is by far the largest healthcare provider in the country. There is no hospital group. There is no private health insurance plan that purchases the amount of healthcare that we do as taxpayers. And in the prescription drug realm, Medicare is for people 65 and older, and you tend to have a lot more prescriptions uh, than people who are younger than 65 uh, on average. And so this has been a sticky point for a long time uh, as prescription drugs, have, especially name brand drugs, have far exceeded the rate of inflation, even the rate of healthcare inflation, which annually exceeds the rate of non-healthcare inflation for decades. And so what this bill would allow, it would allow... Medicare to negotiate 
prices, which is the same thing that every health insurance company does with the hospitals and the other medical providers. There isn't a sticker price for name your prescription drug uh, that then everybody just pays. These things are negotiated between these companies all the time. And so what this will would allow is would allow Medicare to do that. The same thing that all these private sector companies do. And it's really important. It's a big deal because again, as the largest purchaser of these products, this will one, allow taxpayers to save a lot of money, but also uh, could influence the overall price environment for prescription drugs. And so it's interesting to this is it's, it's not a, a tax increase to generate revenue. It's actually um, a means to control spending um, or to reduce spending um, by the federal government on these drugs. And then there's also some provisions about um, inflation as well and, and, and pharmaceutical prices. Isn't that right, Josh? Yeah, there's actually, I, I mean, I want to say close to 20 healthcare provisions in here when it comes to prescription drugs and different parts about um, disallowing rebates, some of these things that, that these companies would do. Um, it's, it's really complicated. And frankly, I don't study healthcare that much, so I don't know all the details. But when you look through all of the things that are in here, um, there's also, I mean, we generate almost $200 billion in savings, but then we turn around and use some of that savings for these to, to increase spending in certain areas, like you said. And one of those would be to uh, prevent to, ca- to put an annual cap on how much more expensive uh, a prescription drug can be from one year to the next. And so that's going to cost, I think, close to $25 billion over the next 10 years. Um, and there's also an extension of Obamacare premium subsidies for another three years under this. And so when you tack all those things on there, some of that, genera- uh, some of that revenue that's going to be generated by this renegotiation and some of these other limitations on price increases will be plowed back into expanding healthcare. The net effect is less deficits for taxpayers. Right. Right. And another area where um, it looks like we're doing some spending to get savings, and this didn't even get calculated into the um, the official score, but we do know um, kind of the back of the envelope score from uh, the Congressional Budget Office, is putting more money into the IRS. Uh, so what, what's going on there and, and, and how does this work, Josh? Yeah, so the IRS, that you know, everyone's least favorite agency, arguably, um, at least many people, and frankly, there's even disagreements on uh, the value of some of the IRS's, some of the value, there's disagreements on the value of the IRS on our own staff in some respects. But uh, I think one of the things about the IRS is it has been starved of money for fifteen to twenty years. So while much of the rest of the government has grown, the IRS was stagnant. Its its budget was stagnant for many years. And so now you have a lot more taxpayers uh, and a lot more, more complex code, but not a much larger IRS. And so if you've ever had to try to call the IRS, it's almost unlikely, it's very unlikely your answer, your call will even be answered. You know, And they're months and now almost years behind in doing so, certain filings on paper on responding to people. And so what this bill is going to do is it's, it provides tens of billions of dollars uh, to some of that staffing, to some of that uh, customer service realms. But its biggest increase is going to be to give money to enforcement. And so the idea here is now, this is where reconciliation makes things a little weird, a little tough, is is they don't have this really, the Democrats do not have this really extensive legislative language that says, here's the money and here's exactly how you do what we want. They had to under the reconciliation rules say, here's a pot of funds, use it for enforcement. Don't focus on people making less than $400,000 a year. 
so this idea here is that you provide more funds so that we can have more audits and more controls, more valuations of really complex income schemes or really complex, um, the multi-million dollar tax shelters. And so this idea is that if you do this better enforcement and you look at these really complicated uh, tax shelters, you'll find ones where they're not just sheltering, but they're actually breaking the law. And so then you'll be able to bring in more revenue. It's a little squishy. And under the rules, they don't include, and Congressional Budget Office does not include an official, this is how much we think you will generate in revenue. But there is a number, $200 billion is what they roughly estimate now is they think that would increase revenues by. That's not even included in the overall savings of the bill. Right. So, you know, I mentioned $100 billion in deficit reduction at the top of the show. Well, it's with that added in, it's more like 300 plus billion deficit reduction. And that's uh, 200 billion is generated from $90 billion added to the IRS, 45 billion of which is for the enforcement. And I think that one thing you hit upon, Josh, and I think it's really important, is that you know they've got antiquated computer systems. The IRS has got one of the oldest workforces in the entire federal government. Um, like you mentioned, people aren't getting calls back. Um, you know, and so the customer service is going down. And these are things that the, the, the national taxpayer advocate, the independent watchdog that works on behalf of all of us taxpayers, has been flagging for years. And so maybe it's counterintuitive, but you make the investments in this agency and it's going to have a better performance for taxpayers. Two things I think are important in this package too, Josh, is, is that to get around the restrictions on policy in, in reconciliation, they've basically told the IRS to come back in six months and tell them how they're going to implement this. So that's the way they're going to try to be able to adjust it on the fly because it's $90 billion on top of what they were going to get in regular appropriations anyway. And then also it has a provision just tucked in there that the IRS is supposed to develop their own free filing um, for simple tax uh, filers. And so this is something that, that people have been fighting for for years that groups like uh, entities like H&R Block and Intuit that has TurboTax have, have kind of stood in the way of because they're the ones who are doing it. But if you could, if especially when you look at and you mentioned the t 2017 tax cut, um, done through reconciliation. Well, that also dramatically increased the standard deductions. There's a lot of people who maybe before would have itemized that now can have a very simple tax form and and, and actually have access to it um, through the IRS actually producing it themselves. And so that's a pretty significant um, win, I would say, for taxpayers. Yeah, I'd agree. And I, I think when you take that provision and you, and you also um, increase customer service, it might make it easier for a lot of people to file. And then you have this money focused on the complex. It's those folks who are have that carried interest uh, that they can then shelter in these offshore accounts and whatnot. It's it really is it is counterintuitive. Very few people want to pay taxes, you know, and but I think most importantly is none of us want to pay more than our fair share. So we've talked a lot about revenue, and you know, there's other revenue streams that aren't that that aren't big in the context of things, but there's a they reinstate the Superfund tax. That's $11 billion. They've uh, permanently extended the black lung, which is for coal miners, that sort of tax. That's another billion dollars. Um, but there's also $430 billion in spending. Is there anything you want to highlight out of that part of this package, Josh? Yeah, there are a few things. And I think the big thing in here is that there's nearly $400 billion worth of spending on various provisions aimed at combating climate change. And so this, again, is one of the things that Democrats and the president had run on and saying, 
we need to do spending to address the real and important threat of climate change. And I think the house, if you look at the house bill, they spend more money uh, and they, they had some more ambitious goals uh, in some of these areas, but this is a deficit reduction package, but it's also a climate package and it's a healthcare package. When you look at those Obamacare subsidies and the various changes to prescription drugs and other uh, areas in there. Uh, one of the things that of course I would like to highlight is that this bill would include about $38 billion in increased investments in farm bill conservation programs. So these are programs that are authorized by our favorite package, the farm bill that comes out every five years that will be debated next year uh, and authorized in all likelihood. Uh, but this puts a, a boost of nearly $40 billion into those programs and saying, we're not creating new programs. We're not uh, even changing those programs a whole lot. We are just giving a bunch of money to these programs that every year there's more farmers who want to participate in these programs than money is available. And so this will do a real shot in the arm for some of these programs that help they really do help farmers and ranchers uh, adapt to climate change and implement some conservation practices that can save them money, save us money by helping them not lose their crops. And in the end, they can sequester carbon. They can do all kinds of great things for the environment. But it's not just an ag. We're also seeing this in some of the infrastructure, physical infrastructure, and there's some forestry money. There's a lot of things that are really, uh, and there's, man, let's be clear, there are some provisions we don't like as much. Uh, there are yeah, There is a lot of energy spending. And so some of that is 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 good, arguably, um, but some of it's on some failed or false climate solutions, such as biofuels. Uh, and so it's a mixed bag. It's not the best bill in the world. Um, there are some good attributes to it you know, that we've mentioned, but I think at this state in the game, it's pretty clear the calculation amongst the Democrats is this is the last real train moving the station in Washington. So they're going to do everything they can to get on board, pass this, and then have their spike the ball moment before the election. As they say, politics is the art of the possible. And one thing that is remarkable to us is that there's real deficit reduction. There you have it, listeners. Inflation reduction, TBD. Deficit reduction, we think so. And the adage remains true. You got to spend money to make money. This is the frequency. Mark it on your dial. Subscribe and share. And know this. Taxpayers for Common Sense has your back, America. We read the bills, monitor the earmarks, and highlight those wasteful programs that poorly spend our money and shift long-term risk to taxpayers. We'll be back with a new episode, and I hope you'll meet us right here.